Bienvenidos. That's California for welcome to the January 25th edition of National Review's Radio Free California Podcast. I'm Will Swain, president of the California Policy Center. You can find my colleagues and me at CaliforniaPolicyCenter.org. One of those colleagues is with me today. David Bonson's in New York, uh, unavailable to come to the mic. But with me today is my friend, longtime friend and colleague, Lance Christensen. Uh, Lance is most recently famous and notorious, depending on your political perspective here. He's a hero of the working people, ran for state superintendent of public instruction. He's vice president of education, policy, and government affairs at CPC. Lance, tell us about your trajectory. You've been on the show before. Take us back to little Lance wearing tiny shoes, tiny pants, tiny shirt. What were you doing? Well, first of all, hola, hermano. So good to see you. <laughs> so I have always liked um, politically uh, tangential things, uh, or uh, politically uh, adjacent, I guess is the proper terminology these days. But I was never like a politico. I wasn't like a kid that wanted to run out and knock on doors and run for office. But I remember I was in third grade. This is kind of funny. I was in third grade, and I was in a class, and one of my classmates' fathers worked at a think tank. Hmm. And it was one of the think tanks that was on the edge of innovation back in Denver, Colorado. As a kid, and he described that one day we would walk up to this television set, that was uh, on the side of a road, and if we wanted to know what was in the actual um, restaurant in terms of a menu, we could just look on that thing and we could know. Mm. And I thought that was the most appealing and interesting thing I'd ever heard of in my entire life. And I thought, if there is a job in the world that I can have that would allow me to think for a living, why wouldn't I want to do that? That's so, pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, so, uh, unlike me, because I wanted to be a priest. As soon as I was a boy in pants, I wanted to wear a dress. What's up with that? No offense to my Catholic confreres. Uh, Lance, we're going to talk a little bit later on in the show, or maybe a lot of it, I hope, about uh, what it's like to be on the campaign trail for a statewide office in California. Um, I had a friend say, uh, Lance is really just a like dead man walking, right? I mean, he knows he's going to lose. And I said, no, he absolutely knows he's going to win. And I think that's part of, I want to get at that sort of psychological calculation that I think is absolutely required for somebody to run, because otherwise you do look like a zombie, just sort of trudging the road of unhappy destiny, and you know you're going to get slaughtered. You were always optimistic, always upbeat. You took that into your meetings with uh, local groups all over the state. We'll get to that. The news, of course, this week that's everywhere. Uh, shootings in California, mass shootings in California. Everybody knows the stories by now. Monterey Park, uh, shooting at a, a da couple of dance clubs there, 11 people dead. Shootings at a mushroom farm up in Half Moon Bay, seven people dead there. Uh, shooting, a, I want to say now, a week and a half, two weeks ago in Goshen. Um, you'll know Goshen because you've driven through there. That is like up sort of, uh, we're Sacramento adjacent at that point in the yeah, town of Goshen. There's a lot of... A lot of, of cities. <laughs> but there was a, a horrific, I mean, you know, I pardon me for laughing one second ago and then becoming suddenly somber, but for those of us who read about the shooting in Goshen, which appeared to be a, a feud between, yeah, at this point, the story looks like drug cartels, uh, drug traffickers, local gangs, something like that. There's, you know, there's apparently a, a really kind of frontier town at this point, um, you know, in the, in the most... I think infamous and terrifying moment. A 16-year-old mother of a young child is shot to death with the baby killed in her arms. Um, so there's there's clearly violence, and clearly guns are at the center of the discussion about you know why there's so much violence. And 
this will come as no surprise to our listeners, but of course, Gavin Newsom comes out of the box. The Democrats in the legislature come out immediately and turn it into a problem of Republicans and federal failure on gun control without ever examining the more nuanced um, features of these attacks. Number one, I mean, the most fascinating thing was I was listening to NPR the morning after the shooting, or two mornings after the uh, shooting up in Monterey Park, and uh, they were interviewing a UCLA professor. Monterey Park, everybody knows by now, is a very, very uh, immigrant-oriented community. It's primarily Chinese. The shooter was himself Chinese. Uh, had atten- he had gone to this ballroom multiple times um, and shot up a bunch of Chinese patrons at this dance club. Um, just a horrific attack. And a UCLA professor is interviewed on NPR and with no pushback from the host of NPR says, well, this is clearly just part of the gun culture in America and part of the constant attacks on the Asian American community. Never once did the host say, but the shooter himself is Asian. So is, uh, somebody joked somewhere else, and it's a really dark humor, but you know, the guy ultimately shot himself, so you could say that it was Asian on Asian hate. You know, But the guy shot up a bunch of Chinese Americans and was himself Chinese American. And this feature seemed to have sort of missed the attention of commentators. Lance, what do you, how should we be thinking about shootings like this, the Republican response, the Democrat response? What is, what's your thoughtful response to what's going on here? Well, there is not a gun law in the United States that California hasn't passed or that would, that uh, somebody would want to pass a car that hasn't been passed in California. And the problem is not the law. It, the problem is not a whole bunch of politicians uh, grandstanding about the issue. It's the fact that we have a, a, a dying culture that that breeds a lot of this violence. And there's something really uh, much deeper about this. And then add on the fact that we have a porous border. We don't know where these guns come from. The guns that they're using have been illegal in California forever. It's not like this is some sort of, uh, you know, Smith & Wesson isn't sending guns like this to California right now. That's not happening. And then you have a whole bunch of uh, questions about the mentally ill. And mm-hmm. how do you deal with a lot of people that just don't have the faculty to adjudicate uh, on you know their behavior on some of these issues? And when they get mad, they go and shoot things up. And, and again, mental illness can be manifested in many different ways. And it's not just one thing. It's not just the guy out on the street. But we have so... Um, normalized a lot of these different behaviors that now we're not properly identifying what the problem is. I think we have a lot of, uh, and this gets back to your question too, which is it's it's similar, but when they can't even talk about a horrific event without making it some sort of racial issue, hmm. uh, that's just the, the knee-jerk response to me is just astounding, but that's par for the course and most commentary in California right now. Yeah, you know, what interests me is, and you and I have talked about this offline, I don't want to pretend that this suddenly just occurred to me like, oh man, I got this great idea. We've talked about it on this show, David and I have, the failure of the state to actually, and local government agencies to actually enforce, either for lack of competence, attention, real concern, or funding, uh, coordination perhaps. But the most most notorious of these is called APPS. That's the Armed Prohibited Person System, which we talked about, uh, David and I did, I don't know, maybe 12 months, maybe a year and a half ago, when it really came up. There's a great investigative piece, I'll put it in the show notes, by Cal Matters reporter. 
um, who investigated this system, which is supposed to do something that Republicans and Democrats agreed on in the legislature, traveled back with us in time to a California state legislature in 2001 that was able to pass a bipartisan law that said, look, there are certain people who ought to be in a database because of previous run-ins with the law or mental health courts or whatever it might be, who just should not have a gun. Let's put those people in a database. And then what will happen is all local agencies will coordinate in making sure that those people are disarmed, that those people who have been determined by a court not to ever have the right again to own a gun can actually have those guns confiscated. We can keep ourselves safe. And I want to point out, the Goshen shooting is is its own kind of mental illness, if you will. This is a fight over drugs and terror and its violence, and that's its own kind of mental illness. I'm not talking about that broad category of crazy. But the the guy up in uh, Half Moon Bay, uh, a man of Vietnamese uh, descent, in fact, uh, Vietnamese-Chinese descent, shot up a bunch of farm workers um, who were also uh, Latino and Chinese and working on the this farm, um, clearly mentally ill. We now know that a year, about uh, 10 years ago, that guy had complained that that guy there were complaints about that guy for workplace violence already and then guess what 10 years later he carries out an act of of workplace violence i'm not suggesting that everybody who has ever threatened a co-worker pardon me is invariably going to end up on the hot list the 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 app system but that seems like a good guy for that and the other guy uh down here in uh, monterey park had a uh, a gun uh, weapons uh, uh, charge back in 1990 and you know by all accounts ought to have been on this same thing a guy who is sort of unstable has a lot of weapons um, and have begun acting in very strange ways. But the bottom line is we've got this database started in 2001, which has grown every year with the number of new ads. And Rob Bonta, who comes out and charges Republicans with malfeasance on guns, has done almost nothing to enhance the performance or effectiveness of this one database, which now has something in the neighborhood of 25,000 names on it. I was looking through Bonta's uh, press releases, Lance, and he has this one from uh, earlier in 2022 in which he says something like, uh, thanks to coordinated effort between my office and LA County uh, law enforcement agencies, we uh, we took you know 17 guns off the street or whatever the number was with 11 people who shouldn't have had 11 out of a database of like 25,000. There was a great report 10 years ago. Kamala Harris, the new attorney general, comes in and says, holy cow, we've got a backlog on this apps database. This is 10 years after the thing started. And she's saying, we're going to clean this up. And just like everything else, they're going to clean up. Water shortages, electrical outages, wildfires, uh, widespread criminality, homelessness, everything else they're going to clean up. It gets worse, right? So I guess my point to underscore here is when you listen to <clears throat> our political establishment declaim the the outrageousness of Republicans, and we'll come to more of this and these specific accusations, but the, the outrageousness of Republicans in the U.S. Congress, the failure of the United States to actually back these common sense gun laws. We don't even back our own gun laws. We're just not competent as a state to manage a database that is now in excess of 20 years old. This program has one job. It's to take guns that are already illegal from people who shouldn't have them. We've agreed as a society shouldn't have them. Most of these are felons. People have done really nasty and terrible things. Uh, imagine if we had red flag laws, right? Where wow. uh, you'd be accused of something and they take your gun, but they may not take your gun. They may come and, and you have to barricade yourself in the house. What we've got is a whole 
uh, list of people for various reasons that we don't even know if they do or don't have the gun. And so several years ago, I was the chief of staff, John Morlock, our friend in the state capitol where I would meet with the attorney general's top staff and talk about this. And they would come on bended knee year after year asking for millions of dollars of more money to do this program they weren't doing in the first place. Right. And so I kept saying, where is the mark? Like, if you have a job to do, if we've given you the resources for years, you have the database, you know where these people are. It's a matter of now connecting with the local law enforcement officers and making sure this happens. It's obviously a coordinated event. You should get it done. But this is where the the rub, I think, comes with this call, which always happens, this knee-jerk reaction we get from the governor and the center left, or the progressive left, is that it's always like more gun control laws are needed. Okay, do you have any guns in the United States? I think estimates well over three hundred million, you know, a billion. I don't know. It's a, it is a lot of guns. How on earth do you think you're going to get those guns away from people that don't want to give them up? Yeah. Before you get to all out civil war. So why don't we just take care of the thing that's most uh, important right now? The the issue that we can't somehow seem to manage a program that's been funded for decades. Why don't we get that thing right first before we start? going down a whole other uh, rabbit hole of laws that may or may not be effective. You've got the uh, Politico story there, if I could borrow that back. Thank you very much. Here's Gavin Newsom. Uh, He renews his call for federal action on gun safety after two mass shootings in California. Uh, You know, the bottom line is we can't do this alone. We have to do it with the federal government, uh, California laws. And he says, where's... Where's he been? He's talking about Kevin McCarthy. Where's he been on gun safety reform? Where's the Republican Party been on gun safety reform? Shame on them. Shame on those that allow and perpetuate that to be rewarded politically. Uh, the <laughs> the political the Politico reporter uh, says, yeah, in fairness, Newsom's harsh words for McCarthy, um, still waiting for Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the House of Representatives, who purports to represent the people of the state of California. We haven't heard one damn word from him, not since Monterey Park, not what happened here, not one expression of prayers, condolences, nothing, and it should surprise nobody. The Politico reporter says... Uh, the speaker was, in fact, addressing the shootings at a press gaggle on Tuesday in the Capitol about the same time Newsom was speaking in Half Moon Bay. So he's so eager, our governor is, to turn this into a partisan issue immediately. And I'm not talking about just saying, like, look, there are you know reasonable people on all sides of this issue who who agree or disagree. Um, and we we need you know better enforcement of our existing laws. But we sure do need to work together to figure out these things. Not at all. It was immediate that there were good people. Gavin Newsom and his allies, and bad people, Kevin McCarthy and anybody who allies himself with the Republican Party. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I, bottom line, don't think that's helpful. Don't think it's helpful that this governor, who, again, has a tool, the apps database, to take guns out of the hands of precisely these kinds of people who carried out these shootings, but can't can't be bothered with the actual running, the detail, the, the administrative part of his job, like going over to Bonta's office and saying, Forget everything else you're doing, suing corporations, suing oil companies, um, you know, all the other work that – while we had the storms going on, I was intrigued to watch Bonta's response to all the storms. It was not, you know, we, we pray for people, let's get FEMA in here. It wasn't any of that. It was, I need everybody in the state of California to have their eyes on price gouging. Because the one thing we can't have happen is that someone somewhere will charge more for water or fuel or diesel or whatever it is during a storm. That would be outrageous. That's the primary threat to America, to California right now. How about you just do your job? Um, he's, you know, Bonta's now been in office for years. He can't say it's not my fault. 
um, he's doing nothing. And and same with Newsom. Well, somebody, if they were really smart um, and wanted to aid Gavin on his presidential aspirations, would pull him aside and say, stop trying to make fetch happen, Gavin. Hey, what is fetch? Uh, you know, Mean Girls. Uh, the this, movie. The movie, yeah. You got you to gotta, you gotta see it sometime, Will, with your daughter. She's fantastic. Uh, thank you. Um, it, it's this whole idea that you're trying to make something happen over, and you just say it over and over and over again, believing that it is real, and it's not. It's just it's not going to happen. So, so tell us about what would you... Sorry, the, the I hate to get into pop culture. Talk to me about Fetch and Mean Girls. This is Tina Fey, is it? Yeah, Tina movie? Fey's movie back in, I, I don't know how long ago it was now. Lucas, when was uh, Tina Fey in Lucas is going to look it up for us? Yeah, I, 15. I 2004. Yeah. 2004. Wow. Yeah, okay. So I said 15, about 18 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Anyway, I raised this movie about Mean Girls. That's uh, the Queen Bees in the school, uh, the, the popular ones that kind of set the standard and the culture for the school. And one of those girls is trying to keep up with the Queen Queen Bee and keeps trying to make fetch like a popular, the word fetch you know, yeah just mm-hmm. a part like of the culture like fetching it's beautiful it's something that's or, attractive. or or like you know instead of a freak or you know like a substitute for maybe the f word other oh, things mm-hmm. um but it's just more of a kind of a you know it's a response to almost mm-hmm. everything kind of a clicky type and she's thing. trying to get this to catch on rhetorically yeah, as a thing everybody that people else will just say school. Yeah. yeah and uh, and then finally you know so gavin newsom is really just a mean girl it's kind of what it it's looking like yeah i like where you're going with that um it, one last word on the app system you very helpfully pointed out to me that in 2017 the republican caucus in the i think this is is was this lance from the just republicans in the legislature generally yeah. okay so it's a 20, in 2017 2018 and in 2019 and in 2020 we met with them over and over and i should say when you over. say we i did not point out for listeners who don't know this that you were you've been in the capitol for Years and years and years, yeah. and you actually uh, most recently were chief of staff for State Senator John Morlock, and it was in that capacity that you were able to say, like, I was there. I was. I watched these meetings. I watched these declarations. Republicans have been calling for apps to actually, you know, fulfill its mission, and you're saying that for years that request was made, and it sounds ignored, I guess. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, I sat, you know, as far as you and I are apart right now, just feet from the attorney general's top legislative deputy multiple times as they begged for 10, 20, 30 million more dollars to go out and do a job they weren't doing already. And so, of course, the legislature would pass some amount of that in the budget and whatever. But the problem is, as you you think about what is going on uh, at the Capitol, everybody wants to think that you make this policy, then it's just done. You throw the money out, it's just done. You actually have implementation and enforcement of these laws. Which is a reason I'm a I'm a small uh, government person. It's not that I d- don't like laws. I'm not an anarchist, but at some <laughs> level, every bill comes at the point of a gun, mm-hmm. right? If mm-hmm. you're not willing to go and to shoot and kill somebody uh, to do something, and really, this is and I tell this to my kids, my five kids all the time. If you're not willing to enforce whatever arbitrary rule you've made up as in the family that day, then it's not worth making the rule up. Mm-hmm. We have to have a, a unified community, uh, a state that, that thinks these things are important and wants to enforce them, whether it be culturally, through families, community. But if you can't get buy-in from the greater populace, then it has to come at uh, the force of a police and, and, and jail time and loss of everything. We have a lot of people that have these guns 
that aren't willing to turn them in and the state's not willing to do what it's got to do to get them uh, out of their hands, where do you just stop and say, okay, that's not worth it? So we've talked about uh, mental illness as a problem, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but because I'm not, because I talked about this. Thank you. Um, we've talked about just sort of the decline of civic organizations, the family, churches, you know, a lot of the civic institutions that are required to work in a well-ordered democratic republic like ours. Those things are being wiped away, and sometimes very, you know, thoughtfully, and I don't mean that in a positive sense, but with purpose, intentionality, people like to talk about today. But, you know, I'm thinking specifically of uh, State Senator Scott Weiner and a lot of his work that would seem hostile to the notion that kids are kids and parents have some responsibility for oversight of those children, passing bills that make it uh, easier for kids to get medical treatment without parents' consent, uh, recently uh, passed a law, I think it was in the last legislative session, wasn't it, where he was actually uh, the, the author of and promoter of a bill that limited uh, loitering charges for young transgender youth, especially who might be engaged in prostitution. So it's like you know, you got a kid who's under eighteen and they want to get involved in street sex. Um, pardon me for the, the term itself is sort of weird, but um, you know they they want to be prostitutes, they want to be streetwalkers. And Weiner's idea is no, 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 that's just loitering, and loitering's cool. Uh, these are often very young people who have run away from home and end up with some in some pretty gnarly circumstances. Um, traffic, traffic, yeah. Um, he's the guy who's been the main force behind a bill that would lower the age of voting in California to actually 17 as long as you're 18 by the next election, et cetera. So we've got a guy who is really about let's instead of infantilizing adults, it's really about um, turning young people into full-fledged citizens with all the rights, uh, even those rights which conflict with their parents, uh, turning California into a transgender um, sanctuary state, I think, you know, is arguably problematic for parents in other states who see their kids who are confused about gender and sexual orientation fleeing Texas or wherever to come to California because they've heard it's the promised land. It reminds me of Haight-Ashbury, um, not because I was there when I was eight years old during the summer of love, but, you know, it's it's that, that California becomes the magnet for lots of troubled kids because we hold out the hope that when you get here, we're going to give you free stuff and you're not going to have to live with your nasty parents. So we've talked about mental illness a little bit, but what a, what it's it's simply... I feel like I can hear the attack coming at me as soon as I say, and from the left, as soon as I say, you know what, if you really want to focus on the problem of gun violence, how about really taking a look at family? Um, what's interesting about these shooters is they were men. They were of Asian descent. And I'm talking about Half Moon Bay and Monterey Park here. They were older men. The youngest guy at Half Moon Bay was 66. The guy in the Monterey Park shooting, 72 years old, Asian Americans. And you'll pardon me, I'm a white guy of a certain age, but I'll say that, you know, where I grew up, the assumption was always Asian Americans get family in a way that Anglo-Americans have begun to forget. Latino Americans get the value of family, but, you know, Anglo-Americans are forgetting this, you know, the, the multiple generations living in a single home. These guys were loners. Um, there was nobody really around them who could warn others that there was a problem bubbling. And that's where I think you get to that point you were describing. If you have a civil society in decline, no amount of police activity is going to stop it. No amount of new laws will stop that, um, especially when you're just dealing with the symptoms. 
But my point is, how do you say to people, hey, before you start looking at gun laws, how about looking at family formation and considering the possibility that what the state has actually done is help break down family? Um, does that make any sense? Or Complete I- sense. Family is the fundamental unit of society. When that falls apart and mom and dad are not controlling, again, uh, allowing for all the different <clears throat> adverse circumstances and single parents and all that kind of stuff, get all that. But when you don't have a mom and a dad, things fall apart. It just, it's, it's the, we have thousands of years of civilized history to understand this principle. And you can read Cicero a couple thousand years ago and feel the same way you can read Moses. It's all the same. This is no different, right? But we have leg- a legislature empowered or propelled by certain legislators like Scott Weiner and Buffy Wicks and um, Alex Lee and go down the list mm-hmm. that really what they want to do will is breed chaos. Because what happens with chaos, you need bigger government programs. And so it really is not that the, the family, the nuclear family has, has been established for, for, for eons. It's that now you just replace it with a family of bureaucrats, right? The village mm-hmm. that's raising mm-hmm. the people now, mm-hmm. which is your parole officer and your social worker, teacher. your teacher. Uh, again, all, all these pieces I'm not uh, opposed to. I think they have their places, but when they – replace or fundamentally change out the structure that is the home all these other things fall apart and we could have a whole other conversation about that but scott weiner's bills are not meant to strengthen that they're meant to tear it apart and uh most recently you, you've met scott do you think i know scott very well actually. yeah so let me ask you this you know there's there's this have you seen the movie god i remember where it's on now but david and i talked about this a few weeks ago we both loved the knives out movie with daniel craig have you seen the latest with it's called glass onion yeah we're on an island and edward norton is playing a just like a a kind of an elon musk figure except dumb like he's just this he's a disruptive force and he's created this billion dollar global empire in some kind of unnamed and unnameable practice of social media dark arts and he owns an island, he brings all these people there, but he keeps talking about disruption for the sake of disruption. It becomes very clear through the story that he really has no talent except for his, he's almost an automaton running on this impulse to destroy everything. And and I mean, like, literally it becomes like, oh, this is like a classic Dr. Evil kind of guy. This and is he has guy. something on everybody there, right? And yes. So I think that's part of the... Yeah, part of the calculus with uh, people like Scott Weiner. There's many of them in the legislature, but uh, a lot of them are narcissists, or you know, um, they have other sociopathic tendencies, and so they're oblivious to a lot of regular cultural mores and traditional or you know conventions that you and I would uh, appeal to, and they have no shame. And they have no guilt a lot of times. That's why they can so, push this stuff for. So their deep desire, like uh, Edward Norton's character, to disrupt is what? Is it purposeful towards some very calculated end? Or is it just they like to set stuff on fire and watch it burn? I think it's both. I, I think that some people like to watch stuff burn. But some people don't know why they want to destroy it. They just don't like that it's there. Mm. But it's the Chesterton fence thing, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you have a fence up. Why? You need to know why the fence is up before you take it down. Right. And they've never taken two seconds to understand why the fence is up. Yeah. And so once, but once you start to destroy all the fences around, it's like, have you ever seen that show? Um, I'm trying to remember what it's called, but it's basically what happens if everybody in New York City or the city just leaves one day and how long it takes for the city to rot. 
you would think that the city would break down faster with all these people acting upon it. You know, I think you're thinking of Will Smith. Roman no, 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 no. It's not, it's not a movie. It's like a doc. It's oh. like a, it's like a history or channel oh, type thing. Ah. And they actually, they, they it's like they, they do. It's like point zero, mm-hmm. so zero minutes. Nothing changes, and then a while the weeds grow up through the cracks, right? And then all of a sudden you have a tree growing up in the center of the street, and you have you know uh, rats and and raccoons and stuff. Now windows are breaking because they're not being maintained, and there's no climate control within the office buildings and whatever. And then you have crumbling infrastructure; things start to fall over. And then in like a thousand years, you can't tell that it even existed. Hmm. It's gone. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's happened with a lot of these bills and legislation. It's like we're trying to do one-off things. Mm-hmm. Right, these things have been going just fine for hundreds. Just fine. They've been going well enough for hundreds of years in in the United States. You start one-offing them, yeah, it may not seem like a big deal, but uh, you know things like um, uh, no-fault divorce, mm-hmm. right, is a one issue. You go back to and you think, ah, it's not so bad, especially if you're in a bad marriage or whatever. You know, you know, if you have a a friend who lives in Virginia has to get divorced. It's a painful, long process. It's not like in California, you file the paperwork and it's done rather quickly. Um, that seems convenient, but it, what it does is it broke up a whole bunch of other pieces mm-hmm. out there. Uh, same thing with a lot of these other laws as it pertains to kids and parental mm-hmm. rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course you've got kids that are abused and whatever. I ran for school board in 2008, and it was a fascinating experience because when I did it locally, I had a lot of people say something to the effect of, well, yeah, but if you don't do this, then there's going to be a lot of bad parents that do that. Mm-hmm, and I thought, mm-hmm. we're not making laws off of the handful of bad parents out there. They're out there. They exist. Right, right. I'm not arguing with that. But most of them are really good people trying to do the best by their kids. And if you continue to one-off public policy that way, go down the list, um, it's the <laughs> the the the, the, the uh, Gary Larson far side um, cartoon. My favorite one is the one with the alien spaceship, hmm. and it has a bumper sticker on the back. It says, uh, 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 "Zorbons don't kill Zorbon, or Reagans don't kill Zorbon. Zorbon kills Zorbons." <laughs> and I just think it's the. I want to get the bumper sticker at some point in time and just put it on the car. But it, it's true. Like we have a human component to all of these things, and hmm. we're blaming the tools. Uh, you know, we we've got to get back to a sense yeah. of of responsibility, of accountability, of having families and communities that can get together and adjudicate these things. Our mental health laws actually act against families' interests too. So how do we find a way that the people, the lone wolves, the ones who come from bad families, pretty much every one of these uh, school shooters that we've had over the last decade, couple decades, um, I, I grew up in Denver, Colorado. So Columbine, I used to play tennis at Columbine High School before it all happened so i know the area i know the people well i had people in the building that day that was shot up so i can remember that but if you go back and you look at dylan and eric's and and their history there these are kids that had some tendencies that could be seen from a mile Mm -hmm, away mm -hmm. and it's the same with almost everyone thereafter and yet we can almost identify every single kid that's going to eventually do something tragic like that right but what are we doing to actually intervene nothing Mm mm-hmm so you're suddenly uh, you're in the governor's mansion now. Um, let's flash forward twelve years and do you hate me? Uh, no, I, I used to say that I think if you wanted to get into witness protection, just run for governor of California and win. It's like you know, I mean, I remember a time when people couldn't name the governor, 
And I there's a part of me that thinks that's as it should be, right? Like we should not be so totalitarian in our thinking as a society that virtually every problem becomes a political problem. When I was on the left, the whole idea was um, think globally, act locally, that the personal is a political. And I now recognize those as very totalitarian ways of thinking, especially the latter one that you know that really every the personal is a political. Um, but I, I, I wonder, like, what would you say in the wake of a, of a gun shooting like this? Like, first of all, you know, everybody's, every reasonable person, and that's the vast majority of people, hears something like this, and we're just shocked. Like, every one of us can instantly, there was a terrific story. We can instantly identify with the guy who is 26 years old. His family ran the Starlight Dance Ballroom, I think it was called, in Monterey Park. He's the guy who disarmed the shooter. 26 years old and the way in which he tells the story um let me see if i can find this here um it's it's really quite brilliant and sort of um it's it's illuminating in this way you get this guy again 26 years old his name is brandon say um he was an it guy at the studios family business and he has this description of what he saw and what he thought might happen next. And he says, uh, the guy started, he says, this guy um, started prepping the weapon and something came over me. I realized I needed to get the weapon away from him. I needed to take this weapon, disarm him, or, every, or else everybody would have died. When I got up the courage, I lunged at him with both hands, grabbed the weapon, and we had a struggle. We struggled into the lobby, trying to get this gun away from each other. He was hitting me across the face, bashing the back of my head. And then he finally gets the weapon, and he aims it at the guy and tells him, get the hell out, you know, get out of here. And he says, I thought he would run away, but he was just standing there contemplating whether to fight or to run. I really thought I would have to shoot him, and this is when he turned and walked out the door. The thoughtfulness, because I can tell you my reaction in that moment is probably pull the trigger like i'm not a well-trained or restrained guy and i'm not trained with a weapon uh scare me enough hand me a rifle and an attacker and i'll shoot you know i may shoot up lots of innocent people too i'm not saying i'm courageous or, or or thoughtful but this this guy reveals the difference between the killer who was just looking to hurt as many people as he could and this young guy who couldn't even bring himself to discharge the weapon and shoot the guy and kill him he just told him to leave um, if not for him, lots more people would die. This guy goes out to his van and ultimately shoots himself uh, in the head inside his van. So my, my point is that there's a difference there, right? And in the Asian community, I was talking about this earlier, about how, fa- how family formation I've always – and again, you'll pardon me for my bias – I have always seen Asian Americans as uniquely suited to family life and family formation, intense intergenerational uh, relationships. Nobody's perfect. But this one, these these two shooters just sort of fell out of that. They fell out of, they fell through the cracks of every sort of agency out there that's supposed to be monitoring these kinds of people for threats. We didn't get them. Um, hey, we have so much to talk about here, but I really do want to talk. I think it's a nice time to think about, you know, you, you mentioned parents and family. You ran for state superintendent of public instruction the last election. You lost to the incumbent, uh, Tony Thurmond. Uh, Tony walked away from that campaign uh, with one startling insight, which I would argue he picked up from you, uh, and that was, how do we get parents engaged? The Democrats have, 
now since COVID, the Democrats' whole position has been any parent who objects to complete lockdown of the schools, to anything in the curriculum that they, the parents might have seen on Zoom during the COVID lockdowns, uh, critical race theory, sexualization of curriculum as young as kindergarten, that sort of thing. Anybody who objects to that stuff, the Democrats were saying, is clearly part of a national terrorist organization and ought to be hunted down by the FBI under Merrick Garland and the Justice Department. Uh, that's certainly the way in which California School Board Association has approached the problem. We even passed a bill last year, last cycle, uh, which says that disruption of a public meeting, where you know, our local officials have to have greater tools because the threat from the public is so serious. You went out and said you offered an alternative version, a vision rather, and that is maybe parents need to be more thoughtfully engaged and involved in the process of public education. Um, flash forward. You lose the election. Thurman wins. One of the first things he announces is, I'm building an advisory board of parents, and we're going to really take seriously their thoughts on education. That seemed to come directly from your talking points on the campaign. Did, yeah. did you have that sense? Uh, the, the time is a little bit different on the formation hmm. of that. He actually formed it the week after I announced it as my major proposal. Ah. Uh, so he had announced it back in April, which makes it all the worse, because what he was going to do and I found about this on Facebook. Somebody texted me a picture of it and said, hey, Tony literally took your exact idea. Because I wasn't going to have former parents council, but I thought it would be good to have parents come together and actually have a conversation about what's happening in your curriculum, what's happening in terms of discipline and safety in the schools. Let's have a conversation where they feel like they're involved. They should be the first pers- people, consult and not the last. And right now it's so bureaucratic at the Department of Education, the Superintendent of Public Instruction's office, and pretty much every school board out there that they'll develop entire programs and curriculum. I know this because I sat on an advisory board on my local school district for two years. And our job is to watch over the facilities, transportation, and finance issues. And what you find is that usually these bureaucrats don't want to go and ask the people who are actually in charge of these kids, AKA the parents. So they develop these whole programs and they come to the parents to say, okay, take it or leave it. And then it's like a rubber stamp. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. we can check that off, right? We did that. I said, let's invert the triangle here. Let's go back to the parents and say, what do you want to have a successful education? And by the way, maybe we should involve them in a big conversation. I had a few other suggestions as well, but a week later we get this Facebook post. I'm creating this parent advisory council mm-hmm. and I will pay you mm-hmm. to tax dollars to come and tell me how to do my job better and I may or may not listen to you. Hmm. And so we had a whole bunch of people. In fact, I encouraged all of my um, supporters to, to sign up. And I think they had well over 600 applications. In fact, I don't even know. It was, it was hundreds of applications, if not thousands. A lot by friends you and I uh, have in common because they thought, okay, I want to be part of this conversation. And it didn't happen the month, the next month, and the month after, and the month after. So I started asking, well, you said you were going to create this thing. Where, where is it? Mm-hmm. And, of course, the idea through the campaign was don't respond to Lance Christensen. Mm-hmm. Lock him out. Mm-hmm. We had no televised debates. We had no you know, sort of interactions or platforms, town halls. I had asked every major news outlet out there to do it. John Fensterwald took me up on it with Ed and Source. Yeah, Ed Source, right. Um, Tony didn't show up. Sackby had their editorial board meeting with the both of us there, recorded it. Eventually, they put it out to the public, but it wasn't like a debate type thing. So you can see the conversation on the inside. And I think I acquitted myself well. And then Cal Matters offered to do the same thing, and he refused to show up. So like, there was a handful of, of people that decided to do this. But 
fast forward to about a month ago, all of a sudden, all of my friends who had applied got these rejection letters. And yes. you saw a few of these, too. Yeah, yeah. These rejection. Thank you so much for signing up. Well, they signed up back in April. Mm-hmm. So we're talking almost nine almost months later, yeah. right, that, that this is happening, and they still don't have a decision, and they still don't know how the process worked or who got picked. So again, we can talk all day long about these councils and commissions and boards and oversight once you're in government, but if you're not actually willing to do the hard work and put the effort in, of course you're going to be a no-name. You did something else that was interesting on the campaign trail, and I would argue, I would have argued as your friend, don't do that. You put your phone number in your ballot statement, is I that did. right? Yeah. And so, what what was the purpose, and what was the result? So, the purpose was to show that I'm accessible. If you, if at the time during the campaign, if you were to trying to find a way to meet with Tony Thurman, good luck. Mm-hmm. Like good luck. He would do meetings with people and send his top deputies, but he would never show up. Well, this was a major complaint. I, I loved the endorsements of Tony Thurman because they would sort of say like Lance Christensen is really smart and he knows his way around the Capitol for 20 years and you know he's an education policy guy at CPC um, but A he's for school choice and that's a non-starter with us on the other hand Tony Thurman never showed up for anything not even our interview with him didn't show up for public uh, speeches and was largely missing during COVID but we're going to endorse him we're going to endorse that guy yeah <laughs> <laughs> Who is like MIA? San Francisco Chronicle. Yeah. Mercury, uh, uh, Mercury News. News. Uh, LA, had Times. The LA Times. Didn't endorse in the primary. Wrote it in op-ed saying, basically, this is a really crappy incumbent. He's pretty terrible. And the headline was, you know, pay attention to parents. Mm. And so that was really kind of interesting. They did it. They published about a week and a half after the election. They said he's likely to win. We're really surprised he didn't win outright because there's a quirk in state law. If you run for a nonpartisan office as this was, it's the only statewide constitutional office out of the eight that is nonpartisan. It's not Democrat or Republican. And so, and that those are remnants too of the pre top two elections. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really matter now. I'm putatively a Republican, make no bones about it. I'm conservative. I always work for the California Policy Center. Mm-hmm. I've worked for Republican politics for a long time. Mm-hmm. I was not running, however, as a Republican, endorsed by the party, all that stuff. I was running as a parent. And so, the LA Times makes this big deal about it, doesn't really mention me at all. They say, well, these three candidates were still counting ballots, right? 35 days it took to come to the outcome of who was going to take the second place uh, thing to oh, make so this was in the, the, the primary, yeah. Yes. So we get about a few weeks in, probably July, I get a call from the LA Times. They said, we're actually going to endorse this time. So I thought, okay, I had the, so you're saying there's a chance, right? Mm-hmm. It was like, okay. <laughs> so I thought, there's no way on earth they're going to endorse me. I but, think the line is, it's one in a million will endorse you. So you're saying there's a chance. Third movie reference I just yeah, want to point out. So, oh, I, yeah. so I also started getting calls then from their uh, reporters. I'm not going to name names, but the, the ones you would recognize. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they would call and I'd say, well, all of a sudden the interest in this race, you had no interest when I emailed, called, texted, and DM'd you on your social media. Because we've worked with each other for a long time. Like, I'm not some guy. Yeah, you guy, know these reporters, yeah. I'm not some guy that just jumped up. Uh, we used to have coffee and lunch together. Mm-hmm. We used to talk very openly. And all of a sudden, you're now finding out about the campaign that I've been running and begging mm-hmm. you to cover for a long mm-hmm. time. So they decided to endorse. We go through the whole endorsement interview, and, and it was a pretty intense endorsement interview. I've, I've not been through as many conversations where, the, it, rather than 
argue on the on the issues of literacy why are we 50th in the nation in literacy why is our math competency terrible mm-hmm. why are our st- our schools like completely hemorrhaging students we lost 271,000 students in the last two years hmm. from public schools and it wasn't just covid yes that was a piece of it but we're going to get the numbers here in the next month or so we're going to find out there's going to be another couple hundred thousand gone so they're asking all these questions but what can they focus on well, you want school choice, mm-hmm. or you want parents to have a role, or you want to ban books was my favorite. Mm. I'm like, no, I don't think that uh, Hugh Hefner's collection of the of, of Playboys needs to be in every high school library. I just don't think that's necessary. And I don't think we need books going all sorts of sexual favors that kids can be doing with other kids. I'm not sure that's book banning. Mm. We're not the Library of Congress. We don't have every single book out there. So let's pick the ones that are most... Uh, the the good, the true, and the beautiful. Let's mm-hmm. follow the the things that can get us an educational advantage that can be useful. So we get the endorsement a few weeks later, and they basically said the, the same thing. It's like uh, we want parents, but we don't like these parents, and so we're going to go for Tony Thurman. Mm-hmm. Then, even better, after the election, they write another kind of like post. You know, this is this is how we're going to go because what they saw is hundreds of school board campaigns were taken over by parents Mm -hmm. we had several boards throughout the state that were completely flipped Mm -hmm. because of parents parents that i had endorsed and worked with Mm -hmm. and so they were shocked and and then the headline again was really great it was like we want parents to be involved but just not these parents right right and so i actually have a piece i've been i'm gonna pitch it today as soon as you and i get done i'm sending it over to the times to say hey listen um quit playing um you know this uh, double speak it's so orwellian what our major media has done you've not paid attention to the largest school district in the state that's in your backyard they went from 747,000 people to 423 in 20 years mm. well over 300,000 people gone from the system and then on the first day of school, 50,000 they couldn't account for, didn't mm-hmm. know where they were. And that was this school year. That was this school yeah, year. Right. So we have seen a school district literally half itself in two decades. And it's all of its academic uh, achievements are at the bottom. Uh, when we had the most recent national report card come out, which only tests 4,000 students out of 5.9 million public school students in the state of California. So it only tests a small segment of them. It might have been a few more, but it wasn't. It was several thousand. Uh, LA Unified didn't do as bad as they had done before, so mm-hmm. all of a sudden they're like, "Oh, we're doing better." That's right. No, you're not doing better. You just didn't do as worse, right? And and wasn't it a week later that the more detailed molecular test comes the out, smarter balance scores, which yes. Tony Thurman had buried and buried. refused to show before the election until we called his hand. Right. I argue to people all the time. Listen think that my campaign was quixotic or not i don't care i really did believe i had a chance at winning for the sense that parents were really activated and involved it takes a machine it takes money and the money didn't come in the way i thought it and i hoped it would putting all that aside i'm not blaming my loss on last lack of money but you need resources to run a campaign you knew this because i was out on the road constantly um, on these tours of the state, going to every rubber chicken dinner you can possibly think of, meeting with every parent group I could, candidates run for school board, it didn't matter. I would talk to any party, color, ethnic, creed, religion, didn't matter. I went to a lot of churches. Um, I went out to meet the people where they were. The other guy didn't. Yeah. Sat in his office and then is begging people 
to reelect him to a position he's not done well the first time. So much so that every major newspaper has basically said, this is a worthless office. Let's give mm-hmm. it back to the governor, which is exactly the last place we should do it. Mm-hmm. So um, I really think that parents need to step up. It, it really is time. Is our K through 12 public education system just a glorified uh, daycare center? Mm-hmm. If that's what it is, then fine. If it is that way because you've got to, to order your life around your job and career just to pay the bills, I'm sympathetic. I get it. I understand. But if you really care about the future of California, the future of our, our country, of the future of our republic, you have to do something. We have to do something dramatically different. That's why I'm pleased to be back full force at California Policy Center really advancing the parental agenda. What, what are we going to do to make sure that parents understand their rights? That when they send their kids to school, the, uh, schools are wonderful, and I'm not here to bag on them, but they're not always full of the brightest people. I mean, I have five kids. Uh, my kids will come home from school and say, this teacher is awesome. I love this teacher. This vice principal is amazing. We have some incredible teachers and, and vice principals and principals at our kids' schools right now. They're amazing. We also have a couple of... Uh, People that belong nowhere in the classroom, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like nowhere in the classroom. But they're impossible to fire. You can't fire them because of the way that teacher tenure laws work. Once you're in about two years, which is not long enough for a principal to adequately evaluate anybody, by the time they've found out where the bathrooms are and the teacher's lounge is, that's about a year and a half in, right? They're starting to get a groove. They've got their class schedules. So the principal's going to try to fit in. If he's got 100 teachers at school, it's going to try to fit in all these new teachers into their evaluations. He's about six months to do it. In the in the meantime, he's got 8 million other things happening, including all these reports to write for finances and grants and garbage the state keeps throwing out, mandates. Mm-hmm. So his evaluation is 30 seconds in a room looking at, at, at the classroom teach. The teachers prepare for this because the union has agreed that the administration is only allowed in rooms at certain times at certain you know for certain with lengths, proper notification with proper right. notification so of course they dressed up and, and took out their nose ring and didn't dye their hair purple that day but so they show up they do a decent classroom and again i'm i'm not here to impugn teachers but we have a problem when you have 319,000 public school teachers in the state and maybe only several hundred every year get fired. Mm-hmm. We should be firing teachers at a higher clip and not because I don't like teachers, but because I love them. Well, I was one. You have to get rid of the bad apples. Yes. Otherwise, it ruins the pot. And that's what we have right now in California. So uh, let's get back to the uh, phone number on the ballot oh. statement. Uh, so why did I do that? I did that because I wanted people to, to call me. And they did. They? Yeah like hundreds of phone calls there was a period of time probably run up the election maybe the the last week ish my phone literally rang off the hook now i'll tell you a secret too that was my google number so it went to my phone i got it it's not my home phone fortunately but i took every single phone call i couldn't if i couldn't answer that moment i would call them back people would when i call them back would be like holy cow you you actually called back like nobody i've called every candidate on my list not one of them has called me back Hmm. i said well you're important to me and is that the wisest use of time when you're running statewide for you know you have 22 million voters out there maybe not but what i wanted people i want to disaffect people this idea that i was some sort of just like joke candidate threw my name on there and, and it didn't matter it really mattered a lot and for most people that were willing to have an intellectually honest conversation about education in california I think we would usually leave on good uh, on good foot. Like it wasn't acrimonious. There might have been one or two phone calls where it was like, "Oh, you're just a Republican trying not to, you know, convert our kids to Christianity, or whatever." And you're like, "Nah, I, I really don't care about that, honestly." Like I just want them to be able to do their times tables and read. Yeah. <laughs> 
And they can't do that right That now. makes you unsuitable for a job at uh, the Uni- United Teachers of Los Angeles. So you, you, you handled all these calls, and I, I think you know the most interesting thing for me really took place at the very outset. I remember where I was. I was driving and where I was on the road when you called and said, hey, I'm thinking of running for state superintendent of public instruction. And my response was not quite, but almost like, are you out of your mind? Like, you know, the teachers union will see you as an existential threat. They will pour everything they have to into Tony, who, however incompetent at his job, is, you know, he, he'll, he'll carry the water for the teachers union. He'll do whatever they tell him to do. Um, he is not a he's not a leader. He's not thoughtful. Um, he's he's like I said, he's MIA. Um, but I, 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 I was I was really trying to, you know, at the one on the one hand, be supportive. And on the other hand, just tell you, like, you, you, you really do know what you're walking into here. And you never wavered. Um, you gave me in that moment a response for why somebody had to run right now. There was nobody else out there, you said, who was willing to represent the parents. Nobody. And certainly not Tony Thurmond. This is well before the primary, by the way. And um, we talked about logistics and how you would continue to do your job at CPC. And uh, But the, the primary thing, the, the thing that was really salient for me was watching how Despite the horrific media coverage, despite the ignorance of the editorial boards with whom you met, you know, like I would just read these things and seethe um, because it was always that way. Tony Thurmond is terrible. Tony Thurmond didn't show up. Tony Thurmond has nothing to recommend him. But boy, this other guy likes school choice and parents. That's a, that's a bridge too far. How did you maintain your equanimity? It was hard. Um, you asked a question 10, 15 minutes ago about, you know, if I were the governor's office and these shootings happen, what would I do? I think the first thing I would do is not run out and scream about Republicans. I would say, hey, let's stop and say a prayer for these people. Like, honestly, um, I think that it's coming back in the fashion. There was that football player, you know, a few weeks back, the heart attack in the film. And everybody stopped and prayed and, and we literally had sports broadcasters who probably haven't been to church in ever <laughs> on air on ESPN <laughs> and Fox Sports and all these places literally pray on TV the day after and the week after like I really believe in prayer I'm a religious person you know I know this we have some deep and very spiritual conversations from time to time I'm not out to convert everybody but listen there's something in prayer so one I just do that like it's a humane thing to do and the second thing is I wouldn't run out to blame somebody for this let's gather the facts let's figure out where did this guy come from what was the reason why was why this target why this place why this time what was the actual weapon you know you start reading these reports where it's like uh, uh, assault assault nine millimeter you know handgun you're like this is no such thing it's like like even the reporters still after decades don't even know how to talk about guns in a way that that actually makes sense um and as a gun owner myself i understand that you know it's it's fun when you use big words and scary words but most of these guns do exactly the same <laughs> the, the 22 that looks like some old hunting rifle is just as powerful as a lot of these ar-15s you know it just it's a matter of how you use them or where you use them one looks a little more threatening than the other but they the utility is the same yeah one's a tad more powerful and maybe more accurate depending where you are but i don't know uh you know hmr 17 can do some pretty good damage too depending on how you use it but it's not a big gun i don't know what that and is it doesn't really matter it's yeah. like a 22 but it looks a little more you know um uh, sophisticated mm-hmm. yeah so 
you have a lot of people that want to rush to judgment. We have got to stop the rush to judgment. Step back and say, okay, then then how can we support these communities, right? Uh, does the police or the sheriff's office in that area need some help or some backup from the state? But let me let me stop you there because you know here's my sense. Um, I I had a friend who is you know Newsom inclined, uh, a former Republican who has become so dispirited about uh, what you know he, he started watching a lot of CNN and came to the conclusion that all Republicans are sort of January six types. Um, and he said, well, you know, you rushed to judgment, Will, after these shootings. Like, you were immediately ready to go after Gavin Newsom. And I said, only because he hadn't gathered the facts, because what he said was utterly predictable and dangerous. Um, Republicans did not cause this any more than, well, I was going to say any more than Democrats did. But, um, yeah, and I would, say, I would say that. Like, these are, you know, these are some deeply troubled individuals who are the products of a culture at a specific time who decided that they were going to take out an act of vengeance against innocent people and, and just kill them. Um, I, I, I'm not sure about maligning the Republican Party on the basis of that. Well, and your job is not to escalate every situation to a political, you know, crisis. sort of uh, crisis. Exactly. <laughs> are there are there Republicans who are not good people and don't do their job? Well, yes, we we could. Uh, you and I have all told stories on those. Are there Democrats that too? Yes, but if that's our first instinct is go and make it a political sort of uh, one upsman gamesmanship, we've lost our way. Hey, I want to run through a couple of uh, very quick stories. Lucas, I imagine. How much time do you have, buddy? 56. Uh, how much time do you have? Uh, uh, as long as you guys go. That's our producer. Lucas says, as much time as we have. So He's settle amazing. in, my friends. That's right. We're in here for the long haul. No, we're going to wrap this up with a kind of a sort of a lightning round of issues here. Uh, Joe Biden came to town. We are now switching subjects. Joe Biden came to town to travel with Gavin Newsom and to look at the devastation of the storms and promised Lance he was going to build back better. The federal government is here to help. This is a state which one year ago had $100 billion. Um, we have hundreds. Yeah. We have hundreds of millions more that the voters have approved for storm drainage and flood control, reservoirs, dams. None of this money has been used. Great piece, by the way, that I'll put in the show notes. I wrote last year, too, when we had this quote-unquote surplus. Let's just spend cash to get the, the, the shovels on the ground to build these dams. That would be awesome. Um, Ed Ring has a great piece that I'll, I'll post in the show notes. Ed, of course, the co-founder of CPC and still uh, you know, a policy guy with us and who writes extensively about water. And um, his great piece here, which appeared in the LA Daily News and Orange County Register, Harvesting the Deluge is an opportunity for Californians. In the middle of the storms, Ed was writing like, look, man, we've got the money in the budget. The voters want us to capture this water, both for purposes of flood control, but also because we need to be able to drink water and survive. We need it for our agricultural industry. We need it for our, our residential, our offices. And yet none of the money has been spent, always tied up in litigation from either union organizations who want to make sure they've got the preferred treatment, that they're going to have the inside track on bidding for their the business of building these things. And so they file in CEQA claims, uh, California Environmental Quality Act claims, that the project is dangerous or disastrous. And of course, you've got the environmental movement, which makes its money by just opposing anything that sustains human life. Um, they will not be happy until we're all living in highly dense urban centers with mass transit, no cars, and uh, a thimble full of water per day, it seems. Uh, Ed writes, 
with this quantity of water already delivered from the sky, with so much more on the way, one might think that drought restrictions could be lifted, but not so fast. Despite predicting for years that Californians are going to need to rely less on a diminishing snowpack and more on harvesting water from storm runoff, the state has done little to take advantage of the new normal. So when the rain stops and the snow melts prematurely, Californians will face another year of drought restrictions. So... Joe Biden comes out and says, I'm all for this. You know, we're going to build California back better. Storms are a result of climate change. We have to really attack climate issues, and that's where we're going to build back better. There was no suggestion that maybe Gavin Newsom should use his emergency authority to actually do something that would get these dams, reservoirs, and I think they call them off-stream facilities. In other words, you, you build reservoirs on the sides of all of your major... Down here in Southern California, we've got the San Ana River, this massive watershed that goes up into the San Bernardino Mountains, flows through San Bernardino, parts of Riverside, all the way into Orange County and out in the Pacific Ocean at Huntington Beach. The, these plans for these off-stream facilities would capture some of the water that's just pouring right now uselessly into the ocean. Uh, but we can't get them built. Um, so where are you with uh, storms and water and building back better? Yeah, in 2014, the, the voters voted for billions of dollars to build these dams. There's another way, too. Um, we could just open up some aquifers and just drop the water down. And so in really heavy rain years, you fill it. You fill right. the aquifers, and then the, the the years where it's not as full, you can provide a metric or a balance for which you can withdraw more water as necessary without dramatically impacting the aquifers. But the subsidence in the Central Valley is massive. So tell me about that, because I've, I've seen a few of these places, and what you're talking about is the land literally subsides. It collapses as the water from below ground Yeah, there are some places in the Central Valley where it's like literally 85, 90 feet lower than it would have the water been. is or the land no, the is. land like yeah. the you're you're literally 90 feet lower because the aquifer below you was kind of like a floating pillow of water and when it's when it's deflated you deflate with it mm -hmm. and what happens though in those situations is you actually collapse some geologic found uh you know structures in, below the earth that will allow for these aquifers to happen. Now, so in other words, you're, you're permanently destroying the aquifer. You're not you're destroying it, but you're impacting it in a way that makes it more difficult to, to continue fill. to pull and, and pull from and fill in the future. And so there are ways to do this. And I think if we were, um, if we really wanted to be serious, that's an easy way without building one dam, start to build out or continue to build out the infrastructure to drop the water low and below and then build up. We have plenty of places where we could actually safely build dams that have already been approved, but it is the NIMBYs and the environmentalists that refuse to make that happen. The environmentalist is my professor in, in uh, my first day of graduate school said to me, the environmentalist is the last person to move in the neighborhood. Hmm. And that's essentially what we have here is a whole bunch of people moved to California decided it's good enough. Nobody mm -hmm. else come mm -hmm. and don't change it. Pull up the ladder. Uh, you know, Lance, you just said something really interesting. Where did you go to graduate school, Lance? I went to this place called Pepperdine School of Public Policy down yeah. in Malibu. Yeah. And that's our friend Pete Peterson, the dean over there. Fantastic school. If you're looking for a program that's based in the, in the classics, that has a very um, – thoughtful course a tocquevillian type presence the school of public policy is i think unparalleled it's one of the, the hidden gems of california um, higher education and the the fact that california is placed on the pacific rim gives that school literally on the coast the ability to 
wrestle with some of the hardest issues, not just in California, but across the, the nation and the, and the world. And so I'm a huge, huge proponent of Pepperdine, which is celebrating uh, this next month its 25th anniversary um, as a graduate school. Wow, that's awesome. Um, headline from the New York Post and other news, Nancy Pelosi reportedly summons priests to exercise her home of evil spirits. This is following the attack on her husband by a hammer-wielding uh, maniac uh, who turns out to have been an illegal immigrant who overstayed his uh, welcome in California, but which San Francisco will not turn over to ICE because they don't, they don't play like that. Um, so uh, her husband is beaten pretty severely um 80 something year old guy and you know just a an awful attack um but the new york post is pointing out something interesting it's it's fun to talk i'm a catholic um exorcism is a real thing um and you know for for us for us catholics and i apologize profusely uh, but you know my for, for saying that but i just want to be really clear transparent you know my own sense is that when evil stuff happens in a place there's an there's an opportunity to reclaim the place for its sacred purpose and a sacred purpose is anything that produces human flourishing and we want to step into a place like that and and kind of it's like planting the flag you know you want to reclaim it for the spiritual ruler if you will and that's that's what an exorcism really is it's not the linda blair thing head turning green vomit etc although you know i've heard some stories we all have but um so here's where it gets interesting because nancy pelosi has herself in the crosshairs of conservative catholics because of course she is what we call a cafeteria catholic the kind of person you may have these in the lds church uh, you know virtually every church has this but it's like we have here's our dogma here's our teaching here's our precepts one of which if you're a catholic is we're pro-life we're anti-abortion we're anti-death penalty um but you know you've got a person here in, in nancy pelosi who says no, no 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 i pick this from column a a little bit from column b and one of the things that she's all about is abortion rights she calls them so the the point of the new york post story is that here where you know they they basically accuse her of virtue signaling her catholicism if you will that she's going to let this story get out there that she had priests come in because it shows her catholic bona fides um but the reality is uh that you know she's nominally catholic um so you get bill donahue president of the catholic league which is to the right of me uh, in terms of Catholic teaching, uh, but but Bill Don and Bill Donahue's been there forever. I think the guy's got to be like you know 180 years old. But he says he, he has the best quotes in the New York Post story. He says the woman Nancy Pelosi, the woman is positively conflicted. She wears her Catholicism on her sleeve while basically sticking her middle finger at the Catholic Church every opportunity she has. If it's genuine, wow, she needs psychiatric help, Donahue said. And if not, it's another example of Nancy Pelosi exploiting the Catholic Church for her own personal gain. What what do you make of this? Because, I, and, and I want to say this, like, really, honestly, how other people live their Catholic lives, their Christian lives, their Jewish lives, that's, that's not up to me to determine. I'm not Bill Donahue. I'm not the gatekeeper for the Catholic Church. But I, I'm a little sympathetic here. i got to say, um, there's a, a kind of a weird lack of humility on nancy pelosi's part and joe biden i would argue you know both of whom talk all the time about how attentive they are as catholics but who are absolutely rigorously on the side of aborting more kids um there's you know there's my bias so what do you make of this i know it's a it may seem like a an interest squad squabble here to you catholics arguing over theology but but i you know i wonder 
we have a very <laughs> vigorous debate within the Latter-day Saint community as well on these kinds of issues. Um, and I always find it interesting that a lot of my really good conservative friends don't think I'm a Christian. So it's one of these kind of weird uh, places. And I'm at the place where I just don't care. Can we all get along? Yeah, uh, it's the that's a good one. Sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Why can't we just all get along? Um, so I'm the last person to run and say she's not Catholic enough, or she's not you know um, not a real Christian, not living her faith, or she's not a real Christian. I, but if she prays to God and does those things and, and declares it, fine with me. Um, but there is a certain irony, I think, though, of having um, devils cast out of your home. How long have they been there? Hmm. Well, that was somebody else's question. Was uh, I think it was Matt Gates, who I don't normally have any time for, but he said, "Is she going to do this?" And in in the, is McCarthy going to do this in his office, the Speaker's office in the House? Um, you and I talked about one last story. I want to get to here, and then we'll uh, we'll close. But uh, San Francisco, uh, David and I talked last week. There's of course a California State Commission that is talking about reparations. Uh, to African Americans who are descendants of African Americans, either uh, who were enslaved or were merely present as freed people in the 19th century. California's State Commission um, says that you know we would roughly owe each of these um, these victims of slavery, their descendants, that is. Uh, $223,000. Activists attending the commission hearings won something close to a million. San Francisco called all these people amateurs and came out with a proposal to give everybody $5 million. Our friends at uh, National Review, Brittany Bernstein, uh, did a really good job of, and I think you have the quote. Lance, you're quoted in that story. I, I just remembered. <laughs> I, it's, it's so funny. I'm reading the story yesterday as I'm prepping for the show, and I go, oh, Lance is in here. Um, but she she does a good job, Brittany does in this National Review story, pointing out, maybe you can read it for me, Lance. I highlighted the paragraph there where she talks, I think it might be on the second page of the story, where she talks about exactly how much. Can you read that for us? Yeah. If uh, just 50% of the city is nearly 45,000 black residents, uh, residents met the requirements for their proposed payments, the city would be staring down a $112.5 billion bill. $112.5 billion. And that's, then she puts that in context. That's just for half of those, right? That's half, right. For comparison, San Francisco's entire budget for fiscal year 2023, 22-23 is just $14 billion. So almost almost 10 times. Yeah. Um, the annual budget for this one effort and that's and then it. she puts in perspective too saying that you know statewide the budget's 300 billion know, plus billion dollars and that's the third if not more you have this place where once one group and i was trying to explain this to her because i was i was thinking about the political dynamic right now a lot of people in the legislature um, are very divided from, on the inside. You won't know that from the outside. So um, Democrats hold together. We call this the, the there are two parties in, in the Capitol: the party of cats and the party of kneecappers. Democrats and kneecappers, you stay in line. You do not get out of line. When you get out of line, things happen. You lose your office, your staff, your bills are taken away. Fundraising goes. You're not run for re-election. They'll run somebody against you. They'll recall you. It happens. I've watched it happen personally multiple times. It's not something you make up. Republicans, on the other hand, are the party of cats. You don't tell a cat what to do. And you can't herd cats, and they kind of go wherever. And so people are like, why don't Republicans get together and whatever? Because that's not what they do. They really believe they're their own person. Mm -hmm. And so when people want to say, well, the Republican Party should do, well, guess what? It's never going to happen. That's not the way center-right conservative libertarian fill in the blank that's not why they're built. They just aren't. And so when you have this sort of dynamic, what you don't see below the surface is a very divided caucus because your Latinos and the Black Caucus do not like each other. 
Hmm. There's this, always this inner... Um, oh, we saw this interest. in the L.A. City Council correct, fight. Yeah. Correct. And who... Two of those three people were former state legislators in the Senate. One was the Senate pro tem, who still mm. is jealously guarding his his seat on the mm-hmm. city council, though nothing's getting done. The fights between the Latino and the Black Caucus are epic, mm. but you'll never hear about it mm. because they don't want to know. So they're always running candidates against each other in, in the city centers and different places. They stake their turf out, churches against churches. It gets very very heated and so my point in here in this uh in this part of this conversation is okay it's all right to to establish the commission to say yes slavery was bad even though california had nothing to do with it, it was not a slave state you know all we even set support out to fight against slavery mm-hmm. and all these mm-hmm. kinds of things you you went through it well um i said what happens when you actually have to pay the bill mm-hmm. and then what's going to happen to all the people that say well this is Otslan. yeah Right? Yeah. This is stolen Mexican country. That's right. And, and what about that? What about your, your Chinese? Native American yeah. or your Indians? What about your Chinese? We gave a small amount of, of, of uh, reparations to the Japanese have the interpret, which was a pittance mm-hmm. for what we'd literally taken from them. It wasn't their mm-hmm. ancestors. We had literally taken it from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Chinese, uh, my friend Tim Sanford makes this point when I see him all the time. The California Constitution was written in 1849. Then it was rewritten in 1879, which was a very racist document. Mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. anti-Chinese mm-hmm. Uh, constitution. There's really no good book written. I've told him, I uh, said, so like, that's got to be the book that has to be written about how this constitution came to be. Guess what? We haven't ratified a new constitution. We haven't new, had a new constitution convention since then. What about all of them? I mean, mm-hmm. half of the infra- infrastructure up in Northern California was built by Chinese laborers. Yeah. And so if you want to go down this pathway, it becomes very, very difficult to get to that without ruffling a whole bunch of other feathers. And then how many hundreds of billions of dollars are you obligating for things that you just can't pay? You're writing checks you can't cash. I would love to talk about this all day long, but we get to run off. That's all we have time for today, Lance. You can always find this podcast on the National Review website, but it would be easier for you and far better for us if you subscribe. That raises our profile and helps others find us. You can email us with your comments and story suggestions. On behalf of my friend and co-host Dave Bonson and Lance Christensen, we give thanks as ever to session producers Lucas Klaus, Brian Tong, and Glenn Hall. And to all of our friends at National Review, thanks also to Metalachi. La revolución continua en la semana próxima. 